Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about young adult oncology with Dr. Asher Marks and Amanda Garbatini. Dr. Marks is an assistant professor of pediatrics in hematology and oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. And Ms. Garbatini is the Adolescent Young Adult Program Coordinator at Yale New Haven Hospitals. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. You know, I have to say that none of us likes to think of young adults as having cancer. I mean, right? I mean, I guess that's all, you know, obviously you wouldn't job, so maybe it's good for you guys, but right? I mean, sure. Yeah, no, we, we don't like to think of it either, um, but it, it is our job and, and it's the, the population that we take care of and that we focus on. Um, and it's interesting that you say that, that people don't like to think about it because some of the issues that we come across and some of the struggles that we have is, is that they are an underserved population. Yeah. And, and so. And, I, and yeah. I guess we should state for the outset, I hope, that uh, adolescent cancers aren't common, right? Not common, no. Uh, yeah. Are there any yeah. numbers? Because I think you know people are going to start worrying, like, oh, my God, does my kid have cancer? Yeah. Yeah. It, so so the, the, what I can tell you about the numbers is that we see um, on the pediatric side, we see about 100 patients a year. Um, of total. Those, total uh-huh. in, in terms of oncology diagnosis, you know, here at Yale. Um, in terms of the population that falls within adolescent and young adult, which we define as about 13 to 30. You know, if, if you look at the NCI, they say 15 to 39. It's, it's a moving target. What about 61-year-olds who act like adolescents? Don't <laughs> I count? <laughs> no, a couple of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but but uh, that fall in that population about two-thirds. So, you know... Two-thirds of the kids. Of, of the kids fall within this adolescent kind of young adult population. So we think about pediatric cancer, but a good number actually run into these issues of, of being a bit older and have their own kind of uh, cancer, their own psychosocial concerns. Um, so yes, it's unusual in general, um, but the population we see, we, we definitely see a good number. And am I correct in saying that uh, Yale New Haven Hospital has about half of the pediatric cancers in the state or something like that? Um, something like that, yeah. 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 So it's good maybe, maybe about 200 across the state. I think that's fair. Give or yeah. take. Yeah. yeah. And what kind of cancers uh, are prevalent in this population? Yeah. So, so the cancers prevalent in this population, you really get a mix of the adult cancers and the pediatric cancers. And that's another thing that makes it so difficult. Um, we're very much siloed. You know, I'm a pediatrician. We have our adult counterparts. So on the adult side, they are seeing things like melanomas, thyroid cancers, breast cancers in younger populations. They can see testicular cancers. Whereas on our side, we're seeing pediatric cancers, but in this age group. So we're seeing leukemias, we're seeing lymphomas, brain tumors, certain solid tumors. Um, so, so it runs the gambit. Um, and the thing that AYAs, we, we call them AYAs, adolescents and young adults, the things that they have in common aren't necessarily the disease process so much as the um, other psychosocial needs that are very unique to the population. Hmm. So Amanda, it's great to have you here as a, as a social worker. Um, 
I can imagine that your involvement is really important from the get-go with a teenager, let's just say teenager, because I think the 20 to 30-year-olds, in my mind anyway, we kind of think of them as potentially more uh, more developed in terms of their ability to process, maybe not. You know, it's it, that's a that's a great question because we actually we we'll, we see a few 20, 21, 22 year olds on the pediatric side for sure, and they're the ones that actually really need the most help because Is that right? they're the ones they're supposed to be. We think of them. We think of them as the most resilient population. They're they've got their whole lives ahead of them. They're you know graduating high school, graduating college, finding a job, um, but that's why they need the extra help because they have all these really milestones come up up ahead of them. Whether it's again graduating, getting a job, dating, marrying, having kids, you know, there's no handbook on how to date when you have cancer. There's no handbook on oh how do you tell like on a dating app, you know, that you had cancer. There's no. Um, there's no like protocol for that. So that's where like the psychosocial needs really come in because as a 13-year-old, you know, maybe you're not looking at that kind of um, stuff just yet, but as a 21-year-old you are. And even as a 30-year-old, you might be worrying about getting married, having kids. Um, can I have kids? Um, and what do I need to do to make sure that I can have kids? And those are all things that we kind of take care of within the AYA program. Um, but they have a really unique set of psychosocial needs. They're going through all of these changes, both physiologically, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, I mean, being a teenager is awful mm-hmm. <laughs> on its own. It's and then got you, some high points. And then, <laughs> and then you throw in cancer, and it makes everything that much harder. And teenagers, you know, they naturally kind of self-isolate, and cancer just makes you that much more isolated. So our goal is to just kind of get them together and see what we can do. I I just have to imagine that across the family spectrum, from the younger siblings, if there are any, to the parents and others, I suppose, the diagnosis of cancer in a young person has just got to be just rock people's world, right? I mean, it's... Absolutely. Everything is up in arms, all your assumptions, right? Absolutely. I mean, again, we think of teens as these you know, invincible kids. And they are still kids, which is also difficult because, yeah, parents, you know, they might be their oldest child all of a sudden has this huge, these huge medical needs. And, you know, maybe the younger kids, I don't want to say get neglected, but they certainly aren't getting the attention that they used to have. Feel neglected, perhaps. They feel neglected. So um, we do try to work our best with the whole family unit, you know, parents and siblings as a whole, just to make sure everyone's getting their needs met because, you know, behind every seriously ill family, every seriously ill child is a family in crisis. Hmm. So, So what kind of interventions or support systems are in place for them or do you put in place for them? So we have um, a really great care team. Um, Asher runs the AYA clinic every Thursday at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital. We have a dietitian. We have a fertility specialist. We have uh, a psychiatrist and a psychologist. We have um, three social workers, I guess now including myself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we all really work together to make sure that they're getting the best possible care, both from um, the physical illness perspective and the psychosocial perspective. So does every family meet with a uh, mental health worker 
regularly, once, assessed? Are there groups available, support groups? Every child gets assessed by a social worker um, who is newly diagnosed. And then from there, they can make referrals to either the psychiatrist or the psychologist, depending on what their needs are. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually our goal to have uh, Kathy Croce, who's our psychologist. She she has a big belief in this resistance model of, of teaching resistance. So um, every Every person, I think, diagnosed with cancer, quite frankly, and especially in this age, age group, I think would benefit, does benefit from psychosocial intervention. I agree. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tremendous thing to take on. Um, and she actually has a series of kind of four sessions she likes to have with almost all of our patients, you know, if, if possible, if they're open to it, um, no matter what their needs. And, and what these four sh- sessions do is that they actually teach a model of resistance to help them through this difficult process. Resistance. 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 Resilience, resilience is the word that we use. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was going to say resilience. Resi- resilience. Right. Um, and, you know, within those those sessions, you know, they're also used to evaluate for other needs that they may have, whether they be psychiatric, um, further cognitive-based therapies and things like that. So it's an ongoing process. You know, there's an initial screen, um, but then we do always try to delve a bit further. Um, it's, it's one thing to... Um, kind of get through the cancer, it's another to actually thrive through it, which some of our patients actually have. And it's quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. And, and what about for the parents? Um, parents have their own special needs. They, they really do. Um, <laughs> parents are not just big little people. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Um, you know, it, it's remarkable. I, I'm in pediatrics. I love working with kids. I work, love working with young people because they bounce. You know, they, they often find that resilience. They, they find that strength to get through. Um, and sometimes the parents are left behind. You know, sometimes they are trying to find their own way through this most times. Um, and so that support system that we have, uh, you know, as Amanda was saying, it's not just for the patient. It's for the entire family. Um, support groups is a great question. It's, it's something that we have been struggling with, to be quite honest. Um, it was one of my goals when this program started about four or five years ago. One of the first things I wanted was support groups. And so Dr. Coach and I, we started trying to work on it. Who's appropriate? When can we get them in? How are we going to do this? Um, me being an ignorant physician and not an actual patient thought it was a great idea that, oh, well, we'd run their chemo. They can sit around and talk because oh. that's dead time. <laughs> and, uh, you know. Maybe not. A lot of eye rolls. Yeah. What an idiot. Um so they don't want to sit around while they're getting nausea-inducing meds, looking their worst, feeling their worst. Um, that was a terrible idea. Uh, nobody went for it. Um, it wasn't a terrible idea. It just hadn't <laughs> been thought through. It was a good a idea. thoughtful idea. Um, and, and so then the idea was, well, maybe after hours. Um, but these are young people. They're trying to live their lives. They are. They have jobs, some of them. They have families. They have school. Um, they don't want to be in the hospital any more than they have to. Mm. So we've been struggling with support groups, um, trying to move forward a concept to do these support groups in kind of a virtual space um, using technology, using virtual reality. Um, have teamed up with a, a great consultant from New York to help us with the software. Contracts are just signed, just trying to get it through some kind of safety parameters. Um, but it's one way that we're trying to kind of innovate and get these patients together to get them to socialize. We know that they feel lonely, and we want to get um, we want to get them talking to each other as much as we want support groups, someone to guide them. Ultimately, we want them talking to each other, and and this is when we're going to try. You know, it's it's interesting that that may be the model that works the best uh, logistically, and yet 
it seems to reinforce the whole, you know, um, transition of our society from millennials on downward to people who don't know how to talk on the phone, people who don't know how to have a conversation, text messaging, uh, you know. I mean, maybe it's better if you're Skyping or whatever you're doing or virtual realityizing. Uh, you know, it's 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 more like a real interaction, but it's it's still not face-to-face, right? No, I mean, it's, it's, there's so I'm, much that's lost, in, from exactly. my opinion, as an old guy. <laughs> well, you know, we do have the new teen center, uh, mm-hmm. the Lauren Teles Milo Teen Center, which just opened up in November. And what we found is that once you get the teens into that space, into the room, whether it's, you know, doing a art group or a virtual reality group, the conversations happen organically. Like they just, they crave that social connection, even if they don't realize that they do. Sure. And they would never admit it if they did. They would never admit <laughs> it if they did. But, you know, it, all of a sudden it becomes... Um, oh, you know, what meds are you on? Or is that your port scar? This is my port scar um, kind of thing. And it just just snowballs and it happens. And they make these connections in person in the teen center, which is great. But that right now, you know, it's kind of it's inpatient only. Mm. So but we want to have it open to all of our teens um, and AYAs, especially ones who are only treated outpatient. No, that's fascinating. Amanda, I'd like to come back to what you said about the the really needy 20 and 22-year-olds. <laughs> you know, there's a um, uh, there's a rubric, and I think we may need to uh, move this to the second half of the show, uh, that um, with young male patients, particularly with curable diseases like Hodgkin's, there's a, a large failure to follow through because of anger and... Um, you know, um, disbelief or denial. Um, but I, I'm told that we need to take a break. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we, in fact, we are going to take a short break for a medical minute. I hope that everybody's got on tenter hooks now about those curable diseases. Please stay tuned to learn more about young adult oncology. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a global science-led biopharmaceutical business committed to bringing to market innovative oncology medicines that address unmet needs for people living with cancer. More at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Asher Marks and Amanda Garbatini. We are discussing the field of young adult oncology. Amanda, before uh, I so rudely cut myself off (laughs) before the break, I had asked you a question about this kind of, I don't know if it's an urban legend or not, about young particularly men in their 20s, not being compliant uh, with therapy for Hodgkin's lymphoma or leukemia, curable diseases, just not showing up, a lot of anger. Is is that just a myth? 
Um, actually, I think Dr. Marks can maybe speak more about um, treatment adherence um, <laughs> in that population. Yeah. Um, but there is that, you know, kind of urban legend, urban myth that um, that age group uh, thinks they're invincible. So, you know, maybe what their diagnosis kind, kind of hit, hits them like a boulder and they don't really know what to do. And they, I imagine, do get angry. But I think Asher can speak a little bit more about that. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a matter of... Um, Different coping mechanisms is what we're seeing with it. You know, anything from denial to uh, feeling they're invincible to, um, frankly, flat out rebelling. Um, and and I think it depends on the disease process. There there are certain cancers where it's unavoidable. They're going to you know feel sick. They're going to um, have to be inpatient. They're going to have to be in the clinic. Um, we're giving IV, IV medications, and and in those situations, you know, for for better or worse, um, it's tough to rebel. It's 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 tough to be non-compliant. Um, I, I think where we see bigger issues are with. Cancers such as leukemias, where uh, a large portion, well, for one, they're being treated for around three years. Um, two, a large portion of that time is dependent upon taking oral medications at home. Um, and if you look at the literature, you'll see that there are decreased survival rates in this age group um, in, in all cancers. And, and, and I'm sure compliance uh, plays a role. Um, Particularly, like I'm saying, like I was saying with leukemia, if they're not taking their oral medications at home, um, they're at very high risk for relapsing, hmm. um, and and so it does become an issue. And we try to get creative in, in ways to get them to take their medications. Everything from, you know, taking their phones from at the appointment and setting alarms for them. Um, not that they can't turn those alarms off, but it's easier to turn, you know, easier to, to not. So so sometimes that works out. Um, to having nurse practitioners and social workers who are really on top of them. Um, if, if you look at kind of survival rates of patients in their 20s with leukemia being treated on the adult side by adult oncologists versus pediatric oncologists, um, you'll see that when they're treated on the pediatric side, their survival numbers are a little bit better. Um, why is that? There's some debate. Needless to say, there's some debate amongst the physicians as to why. Um, some of it is thought that the adult oncologists are too nice. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah, that, 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 I think you're absolutely that you right. You guys are more bad, tushed, <laughs> right? Tough love. Tough love, right? Tough love, yeah. And the parents yeah. are, you know, hovering over them. Yes. And that we're it's like, yeah, you want to go to Bermuda next week? Sure, why not? Yeah. More delays. That, that's been proposed. I, and that's been proposed, and I think it's probably the, the biggest reason. Yeah. You know, I, I think I think there's that. I think we, we can be a little bit more aggressive with the regimens that we get because we feel like they can handle it. We've, we've seen the younger kids bounce, so we think that these kids can bounce. Um, but a lot of it is that, that tough love, you know, and, and, and that we try to have the resources um, to make sure they're taking their meds, you know, because, frankly, we, we need it. Yeah. You know, I, we participated when I was at Johns Hopkins, and I, I don't know if the study was open here or not at Yale, uh, in a study of up to 40-year-olds uh, with leukemia, with childhood-like leukemia, treating this uh, AYA population according to your tough love uh, <laughs> pediatric protocols. 
And although I'm not sure it's published yet, I, I hear that the uh, the really the long term outcome is is significantly better than what we what we usually get, mm-hmm. obviously. But it was really hard to treat those patients it's with hard. that. And uh, I think a lot of people dropped off the study because it's really hard. It's hard. It, it is hard. No, no doubt it's hard. Um, and it takes, I think, a, a lot of resources to support that kind of treatment. Yeah, really interesting. Um, you know, I. People may not know if people were fortunate not to be involved uh, with the need for cancer care, uh, may not know that uh, our adult hematology clinic um, in Smilo and the pediatric oncology clinic uh, neighbor each other uh, on the seventh floor. And so I often, you know, on up and down the elevator and out to the bathroom and stuff, see, you know, these kids riding around in their little scooty things or walking around with their parents and you can see they've lost their hair and, um, and they're like, just nothing's happening. Especially those are really the little kids. The little ones. Kids, yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know about the adolescents. I mean, I don't pay attention to the adolescents. I guess the mm-hmm. little kids catch my eyes. They're, like, they're not as cute. Yeah, well, they're not as cute, yeah. and it would be inappropriate yeah. for me to think they were cute. <laughs> In the Me Too era, I would never do that, obviously, but uh, the little kids are super cute, I have to say. Um, but that also comes from, you know, that one of the reasons a lot of the teens feel so isolated is because a lot of that attention goes to the younger, the younger kids. kids, and they're on the same floor as the as a three-year-old. And for a while, there was a playroom, which was very, I like to call Fisher-Price, um, and didn't appeal to teens and adolescents, whereas now we have the Teen Center, which is um, really, it was designed by a by former teens, uh, patient um, by teens, for teens, um, and it's really been a success. It's really been great. And but you're right; they, you know, when you're looking at kids with cancer, cute little bald kids are the ones that you think about. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're also the ones that are on the St. Jude's commercials yes. and on the National Cancer Institute. We've cured. Childhood leukemia, mm-hmm. uh, you know, brochures and stuff, which is all really fantastic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yet we, we also know that that's not always the case and that doesn't apply to everybody for sure. Actually. Um, you know, Asher, I, I know that you're particularly interested in brain tumors. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I just wonder, since brain tumors can affect so much about personality and mm-hmm. cognitive function... Uh, what are the issues around uh, around dealing with that? I mean, from a you know family first recognizing maybe there's something wrong with our kid. Sure. But there's got to be denial about it. Oh, his eye isn't really lazy. Right. Yep. Hey, well, what's that like? Um, it's 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 difficult. So so I I, I wear two hats um, over over at. Uh, uh, Yale New Haven Hospital. So I, I'm the the director of the Adolescent and Adult Clinics, and I'm also the director of the Pediatric Brain Tumor Clinics. And and that Pediatric Brain Tumor Clinic includes these young adults. Um, you know, on on the brain tumor side of things, um, brain tumors come with a tremendous number of what we call comorbidities, which is a fancy way of saying they really suck. Um, you've got endocrine disorders to worry about. You've got your pituitary just little little ball of a gland hanging out inside the brain that can easily be affected by a brain tumor. 
You have um, the cosmetic issues that brain tumors can bring. You know, you've got facial paralysis, um, which can become a, a big issue for, for a young adult. Um, and you've got um, the fatigue that often comes with some of the treatments. So, so I think, you know, combining the kind of brain tumor side with the AYA side um, is, is a tremendous challenge. Um, you know, I've got my kind of two teams that work together tremendously well. I've got my brain tumor team that, that encompasses our neurosurgeons, uh, neurologists, um, endocrinologists, um, and then I've got my AYA team, which is very strongly um, weighted on the psychosocial side. Mm-hmm. And, and when they come together and, and, and work with these patients, it's, it's really a beautiful thing. Mm. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and I think that it, it's a, a multidisciplinary approach, and, and you've got to take it. You know, um, especially when when you're dealing with complexities of complex medical um, uh, situations as well as the psychosocial side. Mm-hmm. And the outcomes for kids with brain tumors is getting a lot better, right? It's many getting, of them, it's, yeah. many of them are cured. Many of them are cured. So, if you look at straight numbers on brain tumors, um, a, a recent review came out, kind of looking at all brain tumors. Right now, we've got 75% overall survival, and that sounds wonderful. That sounds great. Um, that being said. Uh, I think those numbers take into account a lot of benign brain tumors, um, and we know that there are brain tumors out there um, that are almost 100% mortality, mm. and so we've got a long way to go. Um, and what those numbers don't show are, again, those comorbidities. So despite cure of the tumor, these patients have like lifelong health issues, mm-hmm. um, and, and so... We're, quote, doing well, but but frankly, not well enough. And what right. about cognitive function? Are they able to go back to school and at the same yeah. level as they were before? Are, there, are many of them cognitively impaired? It depends. It depends. A lot of that comes down to the need for radiation, and it comes down to the age of diagnosis. So the younger a patient is when they're diagnosed, um, the greater risk you have when you have to use radiation to cure a tumor. So, so in general, we don't use radiation at all in a child under three years of age. Um, Because the the brain's growing too much. It's growing. It just doesn't tolerate it. Um, If you look at kind of trends and charts, you know, what you'll see to, to try to simplify it, you see about a loss of one IQ point uh, per year after treatment when you're treating a patient that young. So that means if you start with someone with an average IQ, you're you know you're dropping them fairly quickly. Fifteen and, points in yeah, fifteen years. Exactly. So you can very quickly get down in, into that IQ. Yeah, sub average. Um, and so we we try to avoid it. The older patients tolerate the radiation a little, little bit better, um, but with them we see a lot of fatigue with treatments. We see a lot of what we call brain fog or chemo brain. Um, and so we pull in our friends on the um, neuropsych side of things where we do a lot of cognitive evaluations and figure out how can we support them through school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I, I think that just drives home the point that um, despite, quote, cure, this is a lifelong illness. Um, it's, it's something that has lifelong consequences, and we're, we're constantly working with these patients, even uh, beyond when treatment is complete. And in the younger adults, you've got the whole career issues. Career issues, absolutely. So um, one of our colleagues, Nina Caden Lodick, is is an expert in long-term survival. And she does some tremendous studies looking at 
um, overall success, quote, success, um, in, in patients diagnosed with cancers who survive. Um, and she's looked at things such as uh, income, uh, marriage status, job status, um, and all these things, these, these basic um, goals of life take a hit with a, with a, a diagnosis of cancer early in life. Um, there are foundations out there specifically dedicated to financially um, uh, helping these patients through, not just during, but after treatment. Cool. So. Amanda, you had mentioned the fertility issues, uh, which, you know, we could talk about. We've actually done some uh, shows uh, with our reproductive endocrinology people about some of the progress, particularly in preserving female fertility with egg harvests and ovarian harvests and things like that. But what about sex? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we don't like to talk about teenagers having sex, mm -hmm. but we know that we read that teenagers ha have <laughs> sex, and we certainly know that all teenagers seem to want to have sex, at yes. least most. So what about that? What about it? <laughs> <laughs> Do you talk about it? Is it an issue? Is it kosher to talk about it in your clinic? It's totally kosher to talk about. Um, you know, kind of rule one when it comes to treating anyone um, from a psychosocial perspective is to meet them where they're at. And if they have questions about sex, if they have questions about relationships and dating, we are more than happy to talk about it and fulfill those needs, um, you know, promoting safe sex um, and sex when appropriate. Um, you know, we're not going to stop teenagers from having sex because it's going to happen. Do you screen? I mean, because they may not feel like it's okay to talk about. Do you ask them if they're sexually active? Um, I don't personally. Um, I do. But, yeah. <laughs> as, you know, as, as a physician, I, as a physician, I, I have to, you know, and uh, um, yeah, it's it's it's, and, and I always preface it with, um, this is part of everything I ask everybody. You know, I, I'm making no judgments, um, but I have to ask. You know. Mom and dad cover your ears. Mom and dad leave the room. Oh. Yeah. No, oh, yeah. mom and dad leave the room. I can tell room. you a story about that. Yeah. <laughs> Not on the air. Yeah, when, whenever possible, if I'm meeting with a patient, I ask to see them alone. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh -huh. And the parents are usually okay with that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They understand. It's different times too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. not not that there aren't sort of a whole variety of range of what's considered okay morally and in yeah. terms of. And even children have the right to confidentiality. Um, no matter what their parents right. say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. I, I in my experience, parents are happy when I do that. Yeah. When, when, when I say, I, I need you to leave the room, I'm gonna, I want to talk to you. Thank know, God somebody's talking alone. to them about exactly. that, right? Exactly. There's almost a sigh of relief most times. Gotcha. They know that there are things that their teens are, are not going to say in front of them. Amanda Garbatini is the Adolescent Young Adult Program Coordinator at Yale New Haven Hospitals, and Dr. Asher Marks is an Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Hematology and Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.